Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Grow Show. I am delighted to welcome uh, this, this time round, uh, Mr. Richard Glynn, f- uh, former chief execs of Sporting Index, Lab Brooks, uh, and a whole plethora of other things that he's going to talk to us about this afternoon. I can't, I'm actually pretty excited about this one. I mean, we had Tommy Evans, so it was the last one that was on, Richard, so some big boots to fill. Um, but I am very excited. So thank you very much for coming on, and welcome to The Grow Show. Well, Ollie, thank you very much, and and uh, you're already setting the bar massively high. So yet again, this will be another one of my my massive failures in life. So I won't be able to fill the boots, and uh, and that will be it. I'll start the way I mean to continue. Okay, well, brilliant. Well, that's it. Thank you very much for coming on to the Grow Show. Excellent. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Rich, I thought just you know for for everyone, this uh, all our listeners that are listening and else, just to give everyone a, a you know a bit of a background as to you know, who Richard Glenn is, you know. The, your, your journey to, to today and you know and and all the rest of it uh principally who he is is a is a fellow with uh, uh, a long-standing family and, and three kids who form the center of everything i do um how I, how i got here is is that wonderful uh, that wonderful unknown path i mean i certainly never set out to to get where i am and, and Doors, doors opened and the question is some of them I should have walked through I didn't and others that I did I probably shouldn't have done. Um, started in, a, started in a, a, a wonderful loving family in the middle of Leeds. I was uh, terribly lucky to be scholarship through education when the grammar school went from being free to, to independent and, and, and we'll come back and talk about this later Ollie, but that's where I had this learned this first absolute passion about paying back about everything is about when you can you give back um look i did all the normal stuff oxford london business school all that sort of stuff and uh, started life as a corporate lawyer but could never see myself um never see myself as a lawyer even though i became a a partner and and that was very lucky because to be honest the other partners and most of my clients couldn't see me as a lawyer either and so uh i i stepped out and went into business um had a series of incredible mentors uh, and found my absolute love in life was working with teams, uh, particularly teams that perhaps could, could do better and businesses that could do better to see if we as a unit could turn them. And, and I think the overriding uh, message that always came out was if we could all look at ourselves in the faces and we could say we tried absolutely everything and look you're 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 the rugby player uh, and and quite an exceptional one but you know that old Aussie phrase never leaving anything on the paddock you know if we could all if we could all look at ourselves and just say that then sometimes actually others were just better than us uh, but then you could walk away and uh, and so that's where I got to to working with some incredible teams and, and having the chance to try and turn them around. I mean it's quite interesting sort of philosophy if you like that that's that, that you've you know got which i think is you know, commendable but where would you say that that how do you think that that sort of developed over time was it just you know as a young kid you, you loved working in teams and with people and realized that was your sort of direction of travel or you know was it were you as a young lad going through education oxford single-minded focused on your own career path and, and you realized that later on in, in your development how did that evolve for you uh, it's a it's a really fascinating question because 
um, as you progress through business, you know, you, you, you take a load of these sort of psychological assessments and, and you all have done them, yeah. team building and, you know, all the different... Insights, profiles, Myers-Briggs, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, all of those. And, and, and the fabulous thing is that uh, as you get older, you realise that actually your perception of yourself is fundamentally different to what others see. So I've always sort of regarded myself as... Uh, as incredibly approachable, as fun-loving, as uh, as you know, a, a, um, a good, really good listener, and and it's quite staggering, actually, quite how opposite it comes out in the in the psychological assessments. You know, terribly intense, very driven, focused, yeah. and all this. And, and so, once you do that, and I did that for the first time when I was sort of mid twenties at, at, at business school. It's that journey, that, that learning, realizing that absolutely everything that happens, in particular all the kicks that you get, if you can keep on learning and having that 100% learning culture all the time, particularly from failures, that's when you can really work with teams. And, and, there, uh, and if you can apply that philosophy to yourself primarily, so every time you fail, you, you really try to learn from it, but also genuinely apply that with your teams, even when you know that people are, are just not doing what you want them to do. If you can turn that from a negative into a real listening and a positive and a learning, uh, then it becomes the most exciting job in the world working with teams. Uh, I'm afraid to say that I'm, I'm still learning. I'm by no means a finished article on it and I, and I still have to challenge myself all the time to listen better. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. One, one of the, actually, the, the key sort of developments or key, uh, key failings and also the, one of the key attributes of the best leaders or the worst leaders in, 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 in organisations, whether that's in sport or, or, in, or in business or whatever, is, is, is the art of listening and equally the art of, of self-awareness. So um, two things I, I wanted to sort of pick up on that one is first one is the sort of self-awareness piece um, because typically what you see in lots of successful people is they're fairly driven and focused on the direction of travel that they want to get to when they and then when they get there the actual outcome is that they need to have a total role reversal of not be single-minded anymore they need to be a lot more holistic in their in the thought process and a lot more considerate towards others and equally a lot more self-aware of their own behavior and the impacts of those behaviors so how did you i mean i don't know if that's typical of your journey or route to becoming chief executive of, of, of a major FTSE company in Labrooks, for example. But, but you know, but how did that play out for you in terms of your self-awareness journey, if, if you like? Yeah, I, um, I've always been incredibly self-aware of being, having imposter syndrome, of really never feeling good enough. Uh, and, and, and it really has always been there and still sits with me every single day. And I know a lot of a lot of chief executives do feel that imposter syndrome. Um, and, and then when you get the privilege of running an organization, you know, what I always used to say, even in the, in the hardest times, is you know, nobody puts a gun to your head and says, you must be chief exec of Ladbrokes. It is an absolute privilege to be there. You know, you are simply the, the guardian of a seat. And if you ever believe you're anything more than just the guardian of that seat for a few years, then the hubris starts to take over. And, and, and there was a real learning for me, which was when you're in medium-sized businesses and you can put your arms around people and you can really understand every essence of every bit of the business, intensity 
helps you a lot. When you're in a global organization and processes and procedures and politics and external relations, you, you have to learn a whole new mindset. And, and if I'm honest about it, you know, you know it was my first time as a, a FTSE CEO and there was a huge learning curve to go through. One of the, probably one of the greatest experiences of my life. But uh, I think there's a lot to be said for people actually learning their way into these sorts of roles um, and, uh, and and you just develop your own techniques with hopefully with support from a lot of people around you and rich that that journey to becoming the chief exec was that a you know just for everyone listening was that a start from the ground and worked all your way up or was that a i was somebody at somewhere else and, and was appointed into role um well actually the strange thing is that you know one of my heroes in life was always tom hagan you know, the conciliary in The Godfather. Yeah. And I always thought that role of being the conciliary was the beautiful role because you were close enough to the flame to feel its heat, but you never got shot at. And so I always saw myself very much more as sort of the Tom Hagen rather than the, rather than the Corleone. Okay. Um, so, so when you get put into that sort of leadership role, it, it was something that, that sort of happened and then you fall in love with it. You know, if, yeah. if, you, if you don't love that role, then, then you, sh you shouldn't be there. So um, it wasn't something that I ever sort of planned and then stepped in. Uh, I'd sold Sporting Index uh, a couple of times. I was running um, Alinsky Partners. We do a lot of transformations for a lot of fascinating organizations and very much out of the blue. Got a call from uh, from the then chairman of Ladbrokes and said, "Your name's been put in the in the ring for this. You know, I'd like to. You know, a couple of people have called me. I think you're patently unsuited for the job. I can't understand why I want to meet you, but uh, a couple of people have said you should meet, so I have to meet you as due process. <laughs> so that was really <laughs> encouraging and made me feel really comfortable. Yeah, really up for the role. Yeah, really up for it. Yeah, yeah, really. You, you know, you you were really wanted. You know, you're patently unsuited and you've got no background to do this, but let's have coffee. So, so how did you, out of interest, how did you find and how did you also manage the transition from being the whatever you want to call it, the, the, the Hagen, as you say, or, or the, you know, the consultant or whatever the, that's providing information to actually then becoming the decision maker because they're two very different roles. And it's, I don't know which one was more in your comfort zone, but how did you manage A, the transition and then B, the responsibility of the, and the imposter syndrome that came with it? Yeah, well, with the, with, the, with the number of failures I've had, Ollie, I think some would say I didn't manage it very well, but that's a, that's a separate thing. And, and again, going back to the, the sort of the, the, the slight schizophrenia about how you see yourself and how, how others see you. You know, I, I had one mentor, a most incredible man, a guy called Michael Lockett, Sir Michael Lockett. And Mike always used to say, he said, Richard, you're a young man in a terrible hurry. And, and you, you know, you just sometimes wonder whether... I saw myself as Tom Hague and what do other people see you as? So maybe it wasn't that much of a transition for me to actually take that, that sort of leadership role. Where, where the biggest learnings were, were um, and, and you know, you captain teams at the highest level, you, you've got to let people have accountability and you have to let people play their roles and you have to define their roles incredibly clearly. Where I struggled really badly was, uh, I, I, you know, if someone wanted help, 
I had to try and do their role, help them with it, and do my role, and do, and and I suppose I was a meddler. I interfered. I wanted to know everything out of fear of dropping the ball. And I, and I think learning to delegate and learning to give other people accountability and learning to really trust process was was really quite difficult for me. And and that and you put that you attribute that down to. I guess what emotional cue is that as you said was is that fear is that fear of what fear of failure fear of fear of somebody so and how so how did that play out for you in terms of the role in terms of you know your role as chief executive where where were you feeling the pressures from if you like coming onto you and then how did you either manage those well or badly yeah um, the, the 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 pressures are internal uh, there's the the pressure the external pressure for me at least was never as intense as the internal pressure the fear of letting people down i have it now with the family i have it with friends i have it with yeah. with you know you go on a bike ride and you don't want to you know you've got to be the one that helps the person up the hill if you're normally i'm the person last on the hill so it doesn't make any difference but you know so it's that internal fear of letting people down that's where it comes from it's not a crippling fear because you know it drives you intensely but there's no there's no external fear that's that's stronger than that and that fear for me uh, meant that i i wanted to know absolutely everything i wanted to be involved in absolutely everything to support people to 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 be there for them so that they never took the first punch you always took the first punch for people because that's what a leader did and actually, you learn over time that that's not what a leader does. You know, that's perhaps what a leader of a smaller platoon does. But if you're commanding, you've got to let other people have the accountability to do it their way. Yeah. And, uh, and it was that fear of letting people down that probably made me interfere until enough people told me, Lily, that's, that's just not useful. If you want to get yeah. the best out of us, X, Y, and Z. And then you learn and you take that as a learning and... And, and you take deep breaths and you process a new way of doing things. Just out of interest, is that one of the biggest differences you notice from, if you like, private organisations or private equity or you know, whatever you're going to call it, small small private institutional businesses like Alinsky Partners, like uh, Sporting Index, as opposed to a big FTSE listed business that, that actually you coined it quite nicely, a, a leadership role, uh, you know, the leader and commander. I don't know, maybe private equity leader, FTSE 100, FTSE listed business, commander. Like, is that a, f- a fair analogy? And how are they different? Yeah, I think it's scale rather than nature of business, because of course some of the private yeah. equity businesses are global businesses. But, but certainly <clears throat> the scale, the command and control structure in a sort of a medium-sized business is such that you can put your arms around it and passion and intensity and and a voracious appetite for work, those are the sorts of things that overcome an awful lot in in that scale of business. Where you get into global organisations, you know, operations in Spain, in Ireland, in Belgium, in uh, America, you have to trust the, the process. You have to trust the the instruments in front of you and then you have to trust the people and 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 i think that is one of the biggest changes between running medium-sized businesses and running global business a lot of running global businesses feels very much more about 
command structures and process a lot of running the medium business is about intensity passion knowledge and things like that uh, and and i think it's very different techniques and you have people who are superb at one not very good at the other and then you have people who can transfer seamlessly through and i mean a massive word that we i've heard a lot is is trust right that you mentioned there so my question is going to be around well how do you build that for starters right and then equally uh you 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 mentioned you know certain instances you were happy in certain instances you weren't so so where did it go wrong if you like from you know building that trust perspective like why why couldn't you trust whatever you know i'm not asking for specifics but more more sort of generally and philosophically what were the blockages for you around the development and building of trust and then equally what what does it look like and feel like in other success stories for you Mm. Uh, you know the fascinating there was a fascinating story at at ladbrooks after two or three years we were at sort of a nine ten year high on the stock price and we always used as a little management team we used to go to a, a place in dorset square for breakfast and we sat around and, and, and the, the stock price was at this level and it had triggered some options and all this sort of stuff. And, and you, you know, you could feel it, feel everyone was quite excited. I remember seeing with the guys and it was a very tightly knit group of people. Uh, and I remember saying to the guys, guys, why are we in this position? And, and everyone went, well, I said, what have we done differently that's really justified this share price? Yeah. And Actually, the truth was that we'd done some really good actions, but the share price, there was a bit of hubris in it. And I remember saying to the team, come on, guys, let's be honest with each other. Let's be really honest. Are we this good? Yeah. And as a team, we all sat down and we said, no, we've got a lot more hard work to do. We can get even better, but we've got to refine things. We then had an absolute hideous year where we integrated the new Playtech digital platform from Microsoft and we got caught between two big giants. And I made a big mistake in not telling the city actually it was going to take longer than it should. It was absolutely the right, right move. It was the basis for all the consolidation. Later, it fundamentally transformed the digital thing and, and the share price came down and we were getting, and I was personally getting probably a massively justifiable kicking, actually, probably a kicking that many people had wanted to give me. Uh, and we went, we went back to, to that same breakfast place and all the team were there. And, and you know, people are quite sheepish when the, when the boss is getting a public kicking. You know, they don't know whether to put an arm around you or to, to sort of go to the toilet and giggle or, or, or whatever. And, and I remember sitting with them and saying, do you remember nine months ago when we were here and we said we weren't that, Good. And it was, yeah, boss, sorry, I remember. I said, well, do you think we're this bad? Do you think we justify this now? And everyone said, no, we've done the right thing. We've done the deal. And I said, you're quite right. We're not this bad. We've just got to keep on working. And that was the best year we'd ever worked. And we went out to the city and, and against the advice of, of everybody, I gave the city five KPIs and said, if any of these five KPIs with these timetables we don't hit, I will resign the following day. Yeah, and everyone, you can't do that. You can't do that. But the boys trusted me to do it. The team was absolutely around it. A lot of the responsibility fell on them to deliver. And that's when you knew that you all trusted each other. And sometimes it's when you can really hunker down and you, and you trust in everything that you've been doing, that you just know that you've built a really good team culture. And people always say to you, you know, what was Ladbrook's life? And I say that, that year when we were getting kicked, everywhere there was another punch coming in yeah was the best year we'd ever had 
We were closer as a team. We worked better. Actually, perversely, Gallo's humour was everywhere. You know, we laughed a huge amount, but it took a vast amount out of the team. But that's when we knew we'd built a really resilient culture. So, I mean, what you're talking around there is, is pressure, basically. The pressure in terms of how it ultimately triggers a human response in us for the good or for the bad. Um, in both senses one you said our year before our share price was absolutely flying the second year we've you know we i don't know whether you made some bad decisions or whatever it was right but it but it wasn't flying how how did you in your role as chief executive feel was that of did you actually well did you feel isolated do you feel sort of lonely at that period of time or and equally i guess what would you have done differently i, I don't mean from like you know decisions of like are we going to go left we're going to go right but what would you have done differently from your own personal perspective in terms of managing that pressure yeah I mean I felt all of those things I, I felt like I'd let people down and that's uh, that's an intense pressure on people uh, did it change your decision making did, no. did you feel it changed anything in, in you in terms of that pressure or you managed to stay consistent um well, I think, that, you know, that's, a, again, a really insightful question. I think that's for others to judge. I don't think it changed my decision making. Uh, I, I, I hope and I believe, and I know business schools always say to you, oh, hope is not a strategy. Well, in hindsight, it might be. Uh, I hope that I still am very analytical. Um, I hope that the decisions that we made were based on the evidence that we had at the right time. Um, and, and I think we were entirely consistent during that time. Uh, I don't think it made me a very pleasant person to be around. I think I became quite insular. Um, I, I think I, I did made that, that typical mistake of people under pressure is you think that you can get out of pressure by doing another 40% work. And so, uh, you, you know, you just work even harder, whereas perhaps you didn't work smart enough. And what I would have done in hindsight, and, and after I left, I worked with a, um, with a psychologist for a year to try and understand everything, which was absolutely fascinating. Worked on me to try and understand it. And, and what I realized I didn't do was I didn't explain things well enough to people around me. And I didn't actually allocate to the chairman to the senior independent directors to the non-executives to the advisors i didn't allocate sufficiently to them to say this is the situation we're in this is your responsibility now what strategy are you going to come back to me with to help us stop this tailspin again i tried to do everything i tried to just take on all of the, the roles myself and so clearly despite all the wonderful words i said to you earlier i simply hadn't learned by that period about that delegation and the accountability and 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 help letting others help me more sure. and uh, in hindsight in hindsight you, you feel rather silly and, and what, what do you think just out of interest what do you think would have helped you at that point in time to sort of realize that rather than having to basically go through the mill and you know come out the end of it and look back and go oh actually if only i'd have done this and this like you mentioned some of the board you mentioned you you saw a psychologist or you know a coach yeah, afterwards. afterwards yeah, yeah. Do, do, do you think that would a benefit like I, I don't know the role of a coach or you know maybe that's the role of the board i don't know but if that had been more prevalent in 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 your sort of in, in at that point in time do you think that would have 
helped or do you think the pressure was so much it wouldn't have it, you, you just went into ro robot mode uh, no, I'm sure it would have helped. I'm sure in hindsight, had I had the strength of character to have uh, probably asked for help more, it would have uh, it would have really benefited me. At the, at the end of the day, the person sitting in the corner office has to take the accountability. I was in that corner office, no one put a gun to my head and I take accountability for everything. But I didn't have the strength, I didn't have the experience to be able to ask the right people for the right advice. And, 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 and I suspect actually people around me who were much more experienced could have said to me, hey, Glynny, I think you need to speak to X or you need some help from Y. Um, whether I would have listened or not, time, you know, that, that's for other people to judge. But I'm certain that, uh, and one of the things that I work with, with a lot of teams on now is, is making sure that in difficult times, you're getting as much help as you humanly can so you can step back and you can make the right decisions. You mentioned quite a valuable point in terms of listening, the, the art of listening. You mentioned it a couple of times already. Like, what does that look like you know, for you? If you were, were going to, you know, now you're sitting with, with the hindsight and the benefit of hindsight and experience, what does good listening look like and feel like for an individual that is in a position of responsibility and they're either flying or they're, you know, and therefore you're, you know, you've got tailwinds or you've got massive headwinds and you're, you're falling fast. Like what does good listening look like at that point in time? Uh, it, it, I, I, I try to, to explain this to people. Good listening is feeling. Sounds like a contradiction in terms, but good listening is feeling. You know, it's making sure that you're actually tuning in with what somebody's really telling you rather than what they're saying. And if you can, if you can be emotionally open enough to try and feel what they really want to say and then give them the space so that they can really say it in a very safe environment, then you can really listen intently. And, and listening is about not having a prior agenda. It's about literally going in there and forgetting what you know, but trying to tune in emotionally to what the person really wants to say. It's terribly difficult for people to, to actually express how they're feeling, what they want for fear of offense, for fear of their jobs, because people aren't used to talking. And so I always say that really good listening is about feeling. Okay, so there's so many things I want to ask in this in that question, right? <laughs> but I'll try and ask the first one of that, right? Which was around um, creating psychological safety, if you like, for, uh, for for whoever it is that you're going to be, you know, consulting or speaking to or listening to. When the pressure's there, most people I find are, you know, time poor. Whether they are, whether you know, life or their business, whatever, is flying or they're, you know. And, and they've got massive headwinds they're in the shit and they're like oh my god like where do we go how how i don't know whether you did or you didn't then but like now how do you think you can create that psychological safety for for for, for an individual when when they're coming to talk to you or you when you're going to listen to them yeah there are three absolutely critical parts for me uh the first one is the process so they know that there is a period of time set aside for them. It's absolutely sacrosanct. It's not times when they're doing emails. It's not times when the phones are on. It's a period of time built in that is purely there for them. Then the feeling of safety is around 100% learning culture. 
that this doesn't guarantee you in any way that your job is safe. It doesn't guarantee you in any way that you will be a success. What it guarantees you is that we will work together to learn from this, which gives you the biggest chance. So whatever you say is, is open. Whatever you say, we will look at together in an environment of learning from it. There may be some hard lessons, but it's a learning environment. And then the third part is about making sure that you are listening with your emotions, that there's no agenda, that it's absolutely open, but you are really listening with your emotions and you are trying to find out what people really want to tell you. And if you can put those three things together, then you create an intensely safe environment for an individual or for a team to express how they feel from that, you can then build a baseline for the process and procedures and rhythms by which you can learn and you can become high performance. But creating that safe space is the fundamental building block for listening. I mean, it's so, it's brilliant, if I'm honest, I'm low, right? But so then if I try and put that through the, your lens, and let's use the, the Labrooks one or whatever, you, you've had a disastrous year. Just, you know, you get oh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that good, Ollie. Okay. Okay. Right. But you've, you've, from what you're telling me, it wasn't, it wasn't that good. You've, you've got the pressure of the stock market, the pressure of the board, whatever it is, you're trying to find solutions. So how do you, in, in that environment, you create psychological safety and go into it with an open mind with, and my question is actually stemming around, how do you remove your own personal bias and preference when pressure is on? Because, it's easy when when you've got time, but time's against you, if you like, and you're trying to be relaxed and open and psychologically safe, but you're also trying to remove, I think we should go left. You're telling me to go right. Uh, how do I, I don't give that any credence or credibility. How, how yeah. do you, how do you, well, you might not know, but like how would you or how did you or you know, your learnings or whatever, how would you create that removal of emotional preference, bias, whatever else you want to call it? I, 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 I probably didn't do it for me. You know, it's the old cobbler's shoes. You, in those days, the theory was great, but, but I probably didn't do it for me. Um, if, you, if, if it's possible for the person who you're working with, the team that you're working with, to know that absolutely this is about learning and getting them to the right place, then it's much easier for people to come in to take a step back and to say quite openly, my preference at the moment is for why. Great. Now, talk me through, let's assume that actually we were going to do Z. Let's assume that Z was the decision. Let's talk about what the process for delivering Z would be. Let's talk about what the obstacles for delivering Z would be. Let's talk about why you should be advocating Z. And we create an environment in which we can compare and contrast the different approaches so that the individual can internalize and take an objective decision without having to worry that they're seen as, oh, but you said A, now I'm doing B, I look like I'm weak. Actually, no, you don't. You look like you're incredibly strong because you've made a fact-based decision. If you can create that safe space in which people know that they are working through the processes themselves, the obstacles, the direction, then they internalize the, the outcomes 
and they can then really take those outcomes out to their teams. So it all comes back to the process by which you allow people to fail within that room because failure there is just a learning process. And so then what I'm, what I'm hearing is also around um, your ability, if you like, to communicate that, uh, if you like, the, the safe space to, to the individual that you're talking to or the, to the teams that you're working with whilst there's a whole load of pressure going on and simultaneously multiple things happening, but also, you know, the pressure of the, the external, right? So that, so a lot of the stuff we've sort of spoken around is actually how do you listen and manage the, the, the internal processes? What would you, what were your experiences of that external pressure and how to manage that external pressure and, and also communicating, I don't know, you thought you should go left. You just had this brilliant psychologically safe, emotive, you know, removal of emotional bias meeting and actually we're going to go right so you know the whole game plans change how, how, how does that work you know how does that work from yeah. an external pressure an external communications perspective yeah I, I i suspect if you want to prod at a saw you're you're just doing it now ollie i mean i don't think oh, guy, <laughs> oh sorry I rich think, <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to yeah no 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 it's it, you know it's uh, I, I don't suspect that i'm the world's greatest external communicator um, you know, I love that very personal one-to-one, but, but, but I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not natural in, in public. Uh, I'm not a great one for profile or anything. Like that. So the, the newspapers and all that sort of stuff was an alien environment to me. Okay. And, and I don't think I was very good, if I'm honest about it, at communicating my passion and my direction to the people who then had to communicate it. So I don't think I made their lives very easy either. Yep. In, in, in hindsight, um, being and using professionals who are exceptionally good at communicating in those environments is critical. And I, and I would have, I would have um, probably used the same people, but I would have been very different in them. Going back to the individual point, the individual point is exactly the same. That if you can, if you can be honest, you can build a direction, you can communicate your direction clearly fact-based to the people around you and they are all aligned behind that vision then once you have alignment you can build the process by which people deliver and it's getting that alignment what i didn't do was probably educate and communicate that alignment externally very well which which was probably mistake number 4328 which led to to an unholy demise but you know that's a that's just learning you know it's all good learning ollie i i, I want to pick up on the the, the the learning piece and the you know the, the the failing or whatever else like how important i guess is failing in the process for you of developing and nurturing talent and and ultimately success you know like what sort of role does that play and then equally how do you that's, how do I, how do you champion it if that makes sense how do you champion failure because where, where where do you draw the line if you like yeah uh, you know, what, what i what i learned really early was if you look at the airline industry and you know you and i had a little chat about this yesterday but if you, if you look at the airline industry there is only one goal in the airline industry and that's safety passenger safety mm-hmm. it's measured by globally by the number of incidents there are that could endanger life anything from the smallest little bulb that goes out through to to fatal crashes and 
uh, what the airline industry has done absolutely incredibly is they've 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 created this 100% learning 100% growth capability so anything that happens on any airline globally is reported and people learn from it and then it's disseminated you know security for the industry is not a competitive sport if we can learn in singapore airlines and we can pass that to malaysian airlines or whatever we all share so there's absolute alignment there's a single goal there's a single standard and and people aren't blaming you for it what they're doing is they're saying well x and y happened how can we make sure that we take that standard of learning to the next level without those incidents you would never go to the next level and as an individual, no matter how painful it is to feel for yourself that you haven't achieved as much as you wanted to, I, I you know, I, I look back on on my time at many, many businesses and think, gosh, what more could we have done? Even if we've sold them for a lot of money, what more could we have done? And genuinely being honest with yourself and saying, what did we do really well? Celebrating what we did really well, but also genuinely learning what we could do better and then building them into the process and if you can create that 100% learning process with the teams around you then it is capable of aligning behind that common vision none of that means that people aren't going to lose their jobs none of that is soft it's incredibly hard because what it does is it says with all that learning then you know who's accountable, you know what outputs are there, you know the time scale that's got to be delivered, we'll train you as best we can, but if you still can't deliver, we'll find somebody who can, and that applies to me or anybody around. So it gives people, it gives humanity that capability of being able to express themselves and be as good as they can. Some people are just better than other people. Uh, yeah. It's not by any means pr protectionist, but it really does allow people to express and fulfill themselves. Do you think that's uh, do you think that's what's missing in in the market at the moment? I mean, is is that, is that um, maybe a that sort of standardised goal you said in the in the airline industry of of safety? Um, I don't know if there are any if I could draw any other analogies of, of where that is, but in the gambling industry, for example, I, I don't think there's one sort of common purpose that everyone sort of strives towards or common standard. Um, mm. And then equally on the uh, on on that sort of hundred percent learning culture environment, it, do, do you feel that that's ever present in 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 the market at the moment, or do you think that's what's missing in the market at the moment? Oh, I, I'm 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 not clever enough to know what's missing in in the market. What I do know is that there are a lot of brilliant businessmen out there who are trying to embed a real hundred percent learning and a hundred percent growth culture into their businesses at the moment. I, I, I think that sometimes short-term results move against that. So if you have to deliver quarterly earnings results, then it's incredibly difficult. When when things go badly, you, you know, you only have to look at football clubs this week when people are getting out of trouble and people like Pearson lose their jobs or whatever. And yeah. uh, you know, I think I think it's too easy sometimes uh, for the the short term correction to mean that somebody loses their jobs you know if if ferguson had been judged on his first nine months of results he wouldn't have been 
the manager that he was because it had yeah. been turfed out. And 20 years later, he's still one of the greatest football managers, reputedly, that there ever is. Not, not that I know anything about football, Ollie, so I don't know why I'm talking about football. <laughs> but, but Rich, but, what, what, what dictates that then? Because obviously, there are the pressures that you're talking around. I mean, they exist in the market today, quarterly earnings results or... Yeah, a month long, you know, you mentioned football, a month long, se- oh, sorry, a month, a year long season that, yeah. that you either get promoted or relegated from. Yeah. So there are most of the construct, if you like, of the market, of the environments are short term mm-hmm. focused, right? You either, you know, you win or lose now, not in. And so, so in order to have that foresight and forward thinking, how, where, where yeah, who ultimately decides that or where do you think that comes from because developing a 100% learning culture is not something you can do tomorrow maybe a quarterly earnings thing you can if it, well yeah. you need to do tomorrow if that makes sense again I think it's the absolute accountability of the CEO to explain what's going to happen over the next two or three years there's nobody else's job if I if I was to come to you and say the company's here now the first year, 18 months, we're going to be training, we're going to be learning. Don't expect great results. You'll see the trends move in years two, three, four, and actually we'll be looking for really good results in year five. Yeah. And if you believed in that strategy, and if I gave you stepping stones along the way that showed what we were doing, and if I communicated properly to you, you as a sensible investor who took a long-term view would say, wow, that's, that's really clear. We know what we're doing. We make the decision as to whether we buy into that and we hold for five years or we'll buy in in three years time when we'll take the risk on the share price being slightly higher, but we'll have got through that uncertain phase in the first instance. I I do still believe that it's entirely the responsibility of the CEO to set the strategy, to explain it to people far better than I ever did. Yeah. Uh, and, And to give people those hooks by which they can be judged and then to take the consequences. But I don't think there's anything contradictory in saying to people, this is the time scale, this is the investment, this is the culture. You please make a decision as to whether you buy that. Yeah? Then people have to have the right to, to make their own investment decisions and employees need to make their decision as to whether that's a business that they want to come to or they want to stay. And building that culture in the business is absolutely critical for for delivery and and just to caveat that then or ask ask a devil's advocate question how um well how difficult is it or how do you make sure that you maintain the consistency if when you announce all that stuff and you communicate all of that all all of that sort of dialogue and uh, direction of travel but actually the response is negative like i don't know investors don't put the money in employees leave and you're like oh okay, I wasn't expecting this. Like, yeah. how, how much do you stay true to that? Or how do you know when to pivot? Or, 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 or how much do you bend to the, the wishes of those short-term, short-termists? Yeah, I, I, and, and that's, I think that's a really difficult conundrum that people face. You know, often people say that, that pivoting, which is this new wonderful business school firm worth pivoting. No, you're, not, you're, you're out of a job and you're going to business school to try and retrain. Anyhow, but, uh, you know, I, I think listening to people who may know better than you and, and thinking it through and having the honesty to say, you know what, actually, I've reconsidered this is now where we're going is a very, very strong thing to do. If you pivot every 15 minutes, 
then actually nobody will trust your direction. If you genuinely believe what you said in the being looked at all the facts, having considered things objectively in a really safe environment and challenge yourself, and you genuinely believe that what you are recommending is the right thing and the thing that you would leave, then you have to be prepared to take the consequences. You know, if, if the market or your shareholders, be it private equity or the family office you work for or whoever, if they don't agree with you and you believe that, then, you know, you have to take the consequences in life. And that's part of, of, of standing up for what you believe in. Um, and then, I guess, moving, segueing into success or you know, achievement, like, how do you from your, all your experiences you've 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 had uh, and i'm going to ask you about some of your highlights and and lowlights of, of that uh, overall uh, after this one but do you feel that your sort of definition of success has changed uh, over over time you know, uh, how do you know in those in the, what i'm getting at is when you're trying to create an environment of 100% learning how can it's it's um that's an objective perspective. I might think it's going really well. Somebody else might think it's going really badly. How do you actually sort of define and clarify what success is and what good looks like? And how do you monitor yeah. that as you go through? Yeah. Uh, from an external perspective, you know, other, other people will define your success for you. Uh, for me, success is a strange thing. For me, success is contentment, is peace. So, you know, where I feel that I've really delivered, where I feel that the team are really performing well, where I believe that we've, uh, as I said before, left nothing on the paddock, then, then I get a sense of peace. Yeah. And I can sit in the garden and I, and I really feel that sense of peace. So you, you, you feel you, you need a, in order to, to truly achieve it, you need a proper emotional engagement with the, with the business. Absolutely. With, Right. Absolutely, with the team, with the business, and 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 you know, even if that means you failed, you can still get that sense of peace if you believe that absolutely everything you did was as good as you could possibly do. But you know, someone was just better than you. That you know that that happens in life. There are people or teams or whatever who are just better than you. You can still get that sense of peace about. I, I really gave it everything. Now, what can I learn for the next cup final? So that to me is success. I tell you, I tell you the greatest business experience that ever happened to me was we'd sold one of the businesses. Uh, we'd sold one of the businesses uh, once and we'd sold it not bad. And we had one employee who, uh, you know, he, 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 he was known for being fantastically grumpy. You know, he, he, he used to say, he used to come into every meeting and he used to say, I've only got two moods. I'm either angry or silent. And he was, but he was bloody good at his job. And we'd sold the business and he came into my office and I thought, oh, fantastic. I'm, I'm going to see him smile. It's going to be that day. And he came into the office the week after we'd sold the business and we were all still working in it. And he ripped a strip off me. This isn't right. That's not right. This is terrible. That's not terrible. I thought, oh, my God, you know, what, what do I have to do? And as he was walking out of the room, he turned around to me and he said, and by the way, he said, today I paid off all the debt on my home and that secured my family. Thank you. And that to me was everything. That was just everything that somebody just said, thank you, we did it. He said, we did it. Today I paid off all it. And, and you don't need anything more than that. That was 
still the most memorable thing that's happened to me. And Rich, how do you then, it's really interesting that sort of analogy, because you get those type of people, right, in organisations. How do you, as the leader of the group or the chief exec or whatever, uh, differentiate between actually the value that they bring and the impact that they might have on the group? Because we, we, there's been lots of, lots of like victim Eldrews in the world that like, you know, even when they win the lottery, it's the worst thing in the world, right? So how do you, how do you sort of ascertain between them that could be a massive emotional drain on the business but they're very, very competent and good at their job as opposed to somebody that brings energy and the imp impact that they might have on the group. Yeah, and that, and, and that was a really important point there because in this case, we had to openly, as a team, address exactly this cultural issue, which was understanding between us, our own personalities, what we brought from the business point of view, but also the impact we had on each other. And we had environments where, where literally built into the process, people would be able to say, well, Mr. X, you know, Jesus, you've been a pain up the arse this week. And I did this for you and you didn't do this. So next time, would you mind doing this? And, and the individual in question saying, yes, I acknowledge that. Actually, that was wrong of me. But then people also saying, but actually that bit of work that you did was phenomenal. And it was about building a culture so that, so that his own personality didn't become corrosive. It almost became quirky. It was, it was something that the team actually joked about and revered because of we knew the value he brought rather than it becoming corrosive. And you have to stop that individualism being corrosive because then the individual defeats the sum of the parts. And it was about creating that safe space in which we could all talk to each other as equals and, and actually create it as a cultural mix. But, but it is a really difficult thing when you have somebody whose personality can impact adversely on the rest of the team. You must have seen this a hundred times on yeah. a rugby field. Yeah, I mean, that's why, that's why I'm asking is, is you get those individuals that are very morose and fairly morbid on their approach. And sometimes you know, they, add, they add, bizarrely, they add a bit of value to the group and other times they can totally sap the life out of the group. And I'm just intrigued to know how you sort of managed all those. So that, yeah, that's, that's a sort of great insight. Um, also true. You, you know, you have the 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 individual who is hail fellow, well met, is always joking, is always pranking, but actually doesn't realise sometimes that he goes too far or she goes too far, and it's it's without pulling the exuberance out of them, is making them realise that actually other people's emotions and sensitivities may be a little bit more heightened than theirs. So it's not necessarily always Victor Meldrew. It may be the person at the other end of the spectrum as well. Um. So let, let's sort of build on this part a little bit more, if, if, if you're right for it, which is obviously around you know, the culture of your organisation that you're building and the, the various different people that make up the, the, the collective jigsaw puzzle of, of, of the organisation. You know, well-being, we're hearing more and more and more and more now in, in the workspace. You know? And what, what, what does that mean to you? And you know, what should it mean to an organisation, you know, that term? I mean, well-being, it's a fascinating term because if you say somebody's uh, physical well-being, you know, everyone says, oh, that's great, they're, they're keeping themselves fit. If you say mental well-being, people actually talk about it as a negative. They say, oh, and mental well-being, well, are they anxious? But actually, mental well-being is exactly the same as your physical well-being. You've got to work on it every single day, and it is a fundamental part of, of, of who you are and how you can perform. You know, I remember as a kid watching... Uh, watching all these sort of kung fu masters, you know, and being in awe of these tiny little men being able to smash bricks and things, 
you think, how, how can they do that? And of course, half of it's training and half of it's mentality. And, and, and the power of the mind is so incredible that for people to think that your mental well-being is any less important than your physical well-being or that you should just bottle it up is madness, absolute madness. And, and, and this has always been something that's fascinated me. And, uh, and I think I remember telling you that this all started at Great Ormond Street for me 15 years ago where, where the, the, the surgeons there, who are geniuses, invested in the mental well-being of the staff, the parents, the kids, because they knew that if the mental well-being was strong and resilient, the kids would get better quicker, and, and they would make more money out of it because they'd treat more kids. And uh, you, you suddenly realise as a businessman that this is the holy grail in life. If you can genuinely invest in your people, care for your people, you can nurture your people, give them mental resilience so that they then can put that into their families and society, but also so that they can bring that mental resilience into the workplace, less absenteeism, less turnover, higher productivity, higher presenteeism, more engagement. Why would anyone work anywhere else where people invest less in them? So you as a business can make hard profits out of something, higher productivity by investing in the well-being of your people and indirectly society. I mean, that has to be the holy grail for any businessman. And that's yeah. how it all started. Yeah, I think, I think where people and therefore, you know, probably businesses struggle and also, and I'm keen to get your thoughts on this, uh, but also see the, see the value is on the physical well-being side of things. It's a lot easier to quantify and and to visibly see if you like you know for example if i go from looking like a couch potato to suddenly i, you know, I can actually you know i'm still waiting for the day but i can you know see a six pack or i can you know I, or, or my whatever my 5k time comes down by two minutes or whatever else it is like you physically see the prog progress and it's tangible the, the the mental well-being side of it, it I, I think is a lot harder to quantify to provide data and, and so my question to you is sort of how how have you found in your experiences to date that you've been able to to demonstrate that value you know that that data that i guess that progress and equally how much how much longer does it take you know the physical side i, I mean i know i've got fitter in a month if that makes sense whereas i don't know if i can know that from a yeah. mental side there was a guy called Drucker who said in the 70s, if you can measure it, you can improve it. Yep. And you're absolutely right. The difficulty with mental well-being was nobody spoke about it, stigmatized, but there was nothing tangible around it. So we set out to create the 10,000 steps, the five a day of mental well-being, which is the index that we've created on 87%. And it takes seven dimensions, 35 sub-dimensions of you of everything that makes up your mental well-being and it's scientifically reviewed and all this sort of stuff so that you can see what they call a trait and a state score you can see a baseline and then there's a learned algorithm behind it which looks at uh, questions you answer every time you engage with the platform the programs you do the tips the tricks the readings when you're not on the app and it works with you every single day to refine your score and then to signpost you to areas where you could perhaps focus more. And then to signpost you again to 
third party interventions that could help you if you need them. And it personalizes around you. So it creates a tangibility around your scoring. It's not a competitive scoring, which helps you to be able to say, gosh, wow, I've engaged with this for three months now. And my anxiety scores have gone up by 17%. And these are the sorts of success rates that we're seeing now because we have sufficient people using the, the app to be able to get scoring results out of it. And we're seeing that in three or four months now, even during COVID, that people who are engaging with the app against a peer group of people who are not engaging with the app are evidencing raises in their, in their anxiety, well-being, resilience scores of between 17 and 20%. So suddenly you're giving them a tangible measure. But if you can give the individuals a tangible measure, by aggregating it and consolidating it, maintaining the confidentiality, you can also give the host uh, a measure. Yeah. It's almost like a diagnostic for the organization, for the team. You can say, these are the three or four thematics that the team are exhibiting. They really need to focus on more, which allows you then to build a program to be able to invest behind that and continue working on areas so the individual says blimey the company's listened to me the company's hearing what i'm saying without ever having to make me disclose and diagnose personally which makes me feel uncomfortable and now they're investing in me that's incredible wow i get conferred gratitude to the business the business is doing the right thing the business reinforces all of the things that I'm doing as an individual. And you get into this incredible virtual, virtuous cycle of investing in well-being, which leads to productivity benefits and gains. And so by tang making it tangible, measurable, personable and engaging, you get people to engage with it. They give you the data and you then use the data to measure. But it's a longitudinal data study. You mentioned the time, Ollie. You, you did a month and you got fit, but if you sit eating chips for two months, you'll get unfit. Yeah. Mental well-being is exactly the same. You can really focus on things and you'll find that actually your engagement will increase. Mental well-being is about resilience. It's about doing it daily, engaging with your mental well-being and knowing that it's a fundamental part of your armory for when something bad may happen, when something good may happen. You know, tomorrow you may lose your job. Tomorrow, somebody may get diagnosed as being ill. Yeah, you have to have the resilience to be able to cope with that. And that means focusing on your mental well-being every single day to some extent. And, and, and this is what you've, you know, you're now as, as chairman of, of this organization, 87%, which is all, all around um, all around delivering against all of those things that you've just mentioned. So just as an interesting question around that obviously the world of physical health the the organizations and individuals are fairly well educated around the benefits of that right how how advanced or how far down the line do you think society is organizations are around the uh, around the education of, of the benefits of of this and where do you think we need to do more it's 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 Actually, the pivotal point, I think, for mental well-being now, and COVID has been a catalyst for it. There's a fundamental change now in organisations to appreciate that mental well-being is a fundamental part of the employee who's in the organisation. And in fact, OCNC did a report uh, that's, that was exhibiting 
a few factors around organizations which will succeed coming out of COVID. And one of the aspects that they said about leadership was that they would have to exhibit kindness. Successful organizations would have to exhibit kindness. They didn't mean holding birthday parties with cakes and candles. What they meant was kindness to the workplace, understanding actually the well-being requirements in the workplace. And those organizations that did this would be the winners, would be the, the sustainable, authentic organizations coming out of the workplace. I think it's going to take another 10 years before actually mental well-being is as embedded into the workplace as physical well-being has been over the last 30 or so years. But there's no doubt about it. It's a fundamental change. There's some incredible people out there now as advocates for mental well-being. And a lot of the big organisations and some of the family organisations know that this is just so important for delivering productivity and also for delivering a sustainable society. Business has got a really important role to play in society, especially now when governments are borrowing so much money. You know, we have to go back to that old philanthropic capital ideas of the 1800s where business has to invest in society. And this is you just coined at the end, but this is your well, not your but the interpretation of, of philanthropic capitalism. Now, you think that that is the organizations that are going to succeed and thrive in the future have to have this philanthropic side to the, the you know, oh, well, rather than me putting words in your mouth, I, you know, it's something you've told me a lot about that you have that you call it the holy grail, if you like. You know, what is this philanthropic capitalism and how is it a differentiator for for organizations moving forward? Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's it's nothing that I've invented, it's not new, I'm not clever. But if you go back to the 1800s, you know, I, I merely have to say a list of names to you, Ollie, and you'll, you'll know them all. The Guggenheims, the Cadburys, the Bournevilles, the Salts, the Carnegies. I mean, these were people who knew that by investing, you know, Marks and Spencer, some of the first people, the Seifs, to do pedicure and manicure in the Penny Bazaar in Leeds for their staff. Because they knew that when the women came in to sell, if their hair was done well and their nails were done and their pedicures they're on their feet all day the women felt better about themselves why would they go to another organization but they sold more and these these businesses created dynastic wealth yeah but they created dynastic wealth out of doing good most of them had religious imperatives which we don't probably have as much nowadays but there's a much bigger imperative for business than just making profit if you invest in your people, the people are more productive, the people are more resilient, the societies are more resilient, you actually will make more profits. You as a business decide what you do with that profit. You can either give it away to charity, as Carnegie said that he would do. You can give it to your shareholders. You can give some back to the staff. You can invest more in your staff. But the fact is that philanthropism now, as I define it, which is investing in the mental well-being of your workplace, is something that delivers hard, tangible business results. It's a duty of business to take up there and invest in its own people so that its people can invest into their families. There's something far more important about business than just making profit. And do you think that um, private capital, institutional capital, you know, the markets, if you like, are waking up to that? I do you think you know, people are voting with their pound notes or you know dollars or whatever else to towards organizations that are delivering against that so it's not all about you know if you like the, the 
quarterly returns now do, do you think that's happened and do you think that, that if that has happened do you think that's because of covid or do you just think covid's expedited that whole process i think covid's a catalyst uh, I, you know if you look at the esg investment movements i think that they're starting to say there's more than just profit but but philanthropism the way i define it which is investing in the well-being of your people will deliver greater profitability so actually, it's hard business investment sense. You know, Deloitte did a report, the Deloitte Monitor Report, that showed a 4.2 times return on investment in preventative well-being, preventative, proactive well-being, 4.2 times ROI. Well, most private equity want three times cash. Yeah, so, so you're ahead of that benchmark. So this is hard business sense. Investors will see that investing in the well-being of their people delivers higher productivity. And over time, what will happen is you'll create, as, as 87% is starting to do, indexes and benchmarks that show comparative returns based on well-being. Why would somebody invest in a business with a lower well-being investment index than a higher one? So Richard, just, so if, if, it's, if the hard business sense is so obvious and so evident, what, why isn't it commonplace everywhere like what 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 are you finding or what have you found are the reasons that people aren't doing it for whatever reason the the bad businesses maybe but why are they not doing it it's really simple it's exactly what you said before ollie you you understood it perfectly it's because the data isn't there yet which shows the correlation between the investment in the well-being and the increased engagement the increased productivity the decrease in turnover and we've got some clients at 87% who are building this correlation now, uh, particularly around decrease in absenteeism, where the factor stated is because their mental well-being is better. So they can then quantify that by saying X days reduction in absenteeism equals Y increase in productivity minus the cost of the investment gives you a return of, of A. And as soon as businesses start to quantify it, you'll get this avalanche of people saying, blimey, we must start actually not only investing in well-being, but correlating it with the, uh, with the other HR metrics. You're a director of one of the, the big four. You understand the way that the accountancy firms correlate the data, HR with financial data. The data on well-being hasn't been available yet because there hasn't been the 87% of the world to give them that raw data back from the employees. Once they start doing the correlation, I think it's inevitable that people will start saying, gosh, this makes hard business sense. And so, Rich, I guess looking on the forward for, for, for Richard Glynn, like what, what's the, I guess, what's the purpose or what's the legacy that you want to leave behind? I don't know if you're in, into legacy or not, but you know, like what's the, if, if, if you were to you know, look back lying on your deathbed and be like okay I've, I've done what i set out to do like, what what is that purpose what is that legacy um and, and has it been consistent all the way through I, I, maybe it has maybe it hasn't uh, um you know what i i always believe that other people create your legacies for you uh so for me it just goes back to to contentment you know if i can if i can look back and i can say you know i've had some absolute kickings i've made some absolute mistakes i've had a few little successes i've met some of the most fascinating people i've continued to learn till the day i die i've continued to be interested in people in teams in getting better 
till the day I die. Then hopefully if I'm, you know, if I'm sitting in the garden and I, and I pop my clogs and I feel at peace there because I've done all those things, that's, to me, that's the only legacy. All, all, all the rest of it is, is very nice for people who like to create legacies and things like that. But for me, it's about that real contentment. Do you mind? Uh, it's probably a, an odd sort of diversion from me, but is, is there ever been a time where you haven't had that, where you felt you haven't stayed true to that virtue or that value of contentment? Like where you've looked back at the scenario and be like, "Oh God, what? You know, why? I'm not content here. You know, I, I feel frustrated. I feel annoyed. Whatever it is, right? And, and and what was the root of that? What did you do that wasn't true or consistent? Because I, I imagine lots of people listening be like how do I get this contentment? Like A, how do I get it? Or B, what does it look like? What does it feel like? And sometimes people relate more to when they've balls it up. Yeah, uh, well, I'm not sure I've got it yet, but I'm working, still working hard to get it. I'll tell you a really, really embarrassing story. A really embarrassing story. And I realised that actually I'd got it fundamentally wrong. So I'd, I'd, I'd sold a business with a, with a remarkable man early on and and... You know, I, I'd, I'd sort of got some, some for me, very nice, but crumbs off the sort of the economic table there. And, and there's no doubts about it that, that I was quite young and, and there was this sort of hubris that came in there. And I, I dashed out and I bought myself a very, very smart motor car. Yeah. And it was a very exciting car. Well, there's only two problems, Ollie, which is one, I am the worst driver that you have ever seen. I mean, I am appalling. I thought, I thought you were going to say there was one problem. I didn't have a driving license. That no, no well, I, I didn't have a driving license, but I, didn't, I am a terrible driver. I mean, a really bad driver. And people who know me know now, you know, I hardly ever drive anywhere. And the second thing is that, that, that I, I, as I say, I have this imposter syndrome. So when you're sitting in, in a smart car, you, you believe that people are looking at you. Well, for some people, they may like that. For me, this just made the driving even worse, even worse. And, and I took this car out and I lived in the middle of, uh, in the middle of Belsize Park at the time where there was no garage or anything like that. My curbs are six foot high. I, I took this car out and within the first day I'd driven it into the curb and I gouged the side of the car. About two days later, I must have stayed for 40 minutes at a junction while people refused to let me out because I must have looked like such a cock in this car. <laughs> People just did not let me out. About a week later, I suddenly realized, this is pathetic. This, this is just really destroying it. And I took an 86% loss in, I think, a month and a half on that car. That was when I realized that actually I didn't have the contentment, the hubris had overtaken everything. <laughs> and I still use it as a way of saying, you know, God, how embarrassing. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> appalling and so if i can if i can use things like that to say look it's all very nice but but you know i ride a three-wheeler scooter now because that's about the only thing that i'm capable of keeping on the road and i'm i'm sort of safe on and so you know that sort of continual learning about challenging yourself and just looking at yourself in a mirror and saying is that going to make me feel good or am i doing that for reasons that actually are not about me you know, I hope one day that I'll be able to look in the mirror and say, well done, actually, you're not far away from it now. You're close enough to, to feeling almost content. I'm not there yet, but, but there's been plenty of those car moments when I've realized, my God, I've just completely lost it. 
Mate, the search continues. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Richard, I could sit here and talk for hours. There's about a million other questions in my brain that I'd like to ask, but I'm conscious of letting you go um, for the day. Like, I cannot thank you enough. It's been absolutely brilliant to have you on the show. I am positive that a lot of the listeners are going to take a huge amount from this. Um, and if they do want to get in touch with you or hear it or get involved with any of the organizations that, that you're now you know, involved with, how do they do that, Rich? Just to, just yeah, we, look, um, it, all, all, the, all the sort of the normal uh, LinkedIn, Richard Glynn, RG at alinskypartners.com, or most importantly, what I'd love people to do is come on board with this philanthrocapitalism. Come on board, get your organization to invest in its people and we can give you the platform, 87%, you know, come on there, get the platform and, and we'll work together to create this investment in human capital, which really I think is the essence of the next generation of entrepreneurs in Britain who will get us out of this crisis that we're in now by business playing its role. And, and, and Ollie, listen, you are the most charming of hosts. You are. <laughs> I don't know about that, Rich. And, and, and it's really grateful for you for you allowing me to, to be so egotistical and talk about myself for a few minutes. So listen, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get that nice cold one and we'll continue this very soon. I look forward to it, matey. Thank you ever so much again. All right, pal. Take care.